Hi, I'm Anne-Marie Cannon, and you're listening to The Last Train Leaving Belgium. Welcome to Episode 3, Part 1 of the podcast. This, it was so vile. It was just, there was no, you know, the, the um, what was incredible was one of the women actually saw, when she saw the soldiers with their guns leveled, she just, you know, pleaded, I mean, she looked pleadingly at them and held up her baby, you know, her little infant. Oh, yeah. and they still, they still, they were still open fire. You know, that was the order that was given, fire. Um, it was just so uh, heartless. episode, we speak to Jeff Lipkes, author of Rehearsals, The German Army in Belgium, August 1914, which recounts the brutal World War I invasion of Belgium by the Germans. This is part two of the Jeff Lipkes interview, and I have to warn you, it gets pretty disturbing as we recount the specific details of the aqueduct massacre that happened in World War I to my mother's aunt, Adele Ubion Charlier, and her family. This is a supplemental limited series podcast that is meant to accompany the soon-to-be-released documentary. Stay up to date with the latest news on the documentary as well as the podcast on social media. You can find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Also, be sure to subscribe to us through your favorite podcast platform. If you listen to us through Apple Podcasts, be sure to subscribe to the podcast and leave a review. All those actions bump us up in the algorithms of the website, which in turn makes it easier for people to find us. So we're here today with Jeff Lipkes. Jeff received his PhD from Princeton. He has authored several books, including the one we'll be talking about today, Rehearsals, The German Army in Belgium, August 1914, which describes what happened to Belgian civilians when the German army invaded in August 1914. Welcome to the show. Oh, thanks for inviting me. In the last episode, which if you haven't listened to already, I highly recommend that you go back and listen to it. We spoke to Jeff in depth about the book Rehearsals. Specifically, the reason he wrote the book the truth about the German invasion of Belgium, and the history of the world's perception of those events. I had somebody tell me about this documentary that I'm doing. Haven't the Germans paid enough? What do you say about this idea of haven't they paid enough in the German guilt? Well, the first thing I want to say is that I was accused by some critics of like suggesting that this was there was a German national character it was it was brutal and um, not humane, and uh, but um, but I've, I'm certainly not saying that. Obviously, Germans Germany, Germans have transformed themselves, and before they were the um, unification of Germany, they were called you know the nation of poets and scholars. You know they were not. They Prussia was always militaristic, but the rest of Germany was not not at all. So I was certainly not saying that this was in a 
these traits that that uh, came out in the um, express themselves during the, the invasion of Belgium. But again, I just, you know, it's it's history. It happened, and particularly what was particularly imperative for me was that it was a uh, it was blotted out. It was just discredited, and uh, I just wanted that that story to be told, and that people would not uh, repeat this misinformation right. about uh, what had happened. As far as that goes, this whole idea of, you know, berating the Germans, why do we have to keep berating the Germans or that sentiment? There is a part in the documentary where I'm in La Roche-sur-Yon with my mother, which is where her family ends up uh, becoming refugees when they flee Belgium. And we're in front of this uh, patisserie and my mother tells a story about how she is with her brother, um, her brother's five years younger than her, and they're just, you know, this is what they did for entertainment during the war, is looked at the pastries, mm-hmm. fantasizing about eating them. Uh, and so they were just sitting, you know, they're looking at the pastries. And a German soldier, because La Rose-sur-Yon uh, ends up being a German military town in France. Mm-hmm. So she's living in uh, not only occupied France, but also a German military town. So the German soldier looks at them. He goes into the... Uh, the bakery. And when he comes out, he has two pastries, one for each of them. Perhaps that was German propaganda. I don't know. But for me and for my mother, that story, it Mm -hmm. brought home that these are just human beings who are in this situation. Uh, She she definitely distinguished between the SS and the regular German uh, citizens that were in the military. And she said that was a epiphanal moment for her, even as a child, that this guy... Maybe he had young kids, maybe he, you know, had little brothers or sisters, but his humanity came out uh, to these French kids. So that is part of the narrative as well, is the humanity and compassion that uh, existed in the Germans. Yeah, and I I actually talk about some incidents, because there weren't many, but there were were certainly some, and um, more often where they would just, you know, in Tamin, where... um, I think about 500 men were gathered and and uh, um, and just gathered in the town square and and executed or they were you know all supposed to be executed. I forgot how many actually wound up dying, but um, but there were so, there were whole companies it seems like that who just shot over their heads, you know, and and repeatedly Germans. Sometimes it was the officers trying to restrain their men who were just on a rampage occasionally. So other times it was men who rescued individuals who were going to be who marched to their execution who just let somebody gesture to an alleyway and somebody and a man was able to flee it's, but more important than that were the few the germans who were actually in positions of authority because who and who actually investigated the incidents that were supposedly justifying the executions of, of people because that happened very rarely because the thing i didn't mention but really part of militarism and nationalism was this belief in collect or companies at, at least is the belief in collective guilt you know over and over again german belgian civilians were told the innocent must pay with the guilty the good must pay with the evil and this condemnation of whole towns whole communities because of some alleged shooting by one person on the outskirts of the town that then the whole town should be punished that was just you know this the english and the French and Americans are individual individualists, and they're not. They don't believe in collective guilt. They didn't believe in collective guilt when the mm-hmm. Allies, when the Americans went into Germany. There's nothing like 
what happened in the, uh, although they had good reason to fear um, guerrilla action against them and the small packs of SS werewolves, they were called. So there was every reason to be very um, brutal, but they believed in, you know, only an individual is guilty and you determine that by empirical evidence, by a trial. There were just no trials or court yeah. courts martials. And, but there were these, and this is, gets back to what we're talking about. There were these a few German officers, a couple of lieutenants, a major who interviewed people on their own, or uh, actually they didn't really, really conduct formal trials, but just in interviewing soldiers, one, one was the major who just issued this searing order of the day where he just, there was some gunfire and he said, ah, I've looked into this. It came from German soldiers. This is inexcusable. All other places, it was like, you know, the, the civilians had fired if, if some soldier made that accusation. So other, and in other cases of, of, of German officers investigating what had actually happened, but there weren't, there just weren't that many of them. And of mm -hmm. course there were, there were uh, kindly German soldiers. There's no question, and and then there were there were certainly regiments that just did not commit these these war crimes. I mean, these were um, the thing that I should mention is um, they're often connected with the German army being thwarted, being um, repelled by either Belgian forces or French forces, and then the atrocities follow because the Germans they were just on a very tight time timetable. They had to defeat France and. <laughs> six weeks and turn around and face Russia. It turned out they didn't really need to do that because their one army in Russia was able to defeat the two much larger Russian armies that were entering into East Prussia and were, so they didn't really need to wheel around and attack the Russians, but they were on a very tight schedule. It was very easy and a, a perfect excuse for the commanders who were who had failed in the river crossings to um, blame civilians. And this is what happened. This is what happened at Denon, mm -hmm. uh, to Bean and elsewhere to cross the river on the 15th of August, and the French had fortified the, as you know, Denant is a very steep gorge, in a steep gorge, and mm -hmm. uh, the French had, up, you know, had, uh, they only had one howitzer, but they had very effective light artillery, the 75, and uh, they just repelled the German attempt, beat them off, and then crossed back into Denant, and the Germans were very upset and frustrated, and the, you know, the commander was like in hot water. And uh, in fact, some people, some historians thought that the failure to cross the Meuse at that point lost the Germans the war because the war was lost, not was there, not on the Marne. He was trying to get in behind the uh, French troops and, and they were retreating south. So anyway. So we're talking about uh, in Dinant on the other side of the Meuse that there were Belgian, French and French military? No, there were no, at that point, there were no Belgians. It was French. It was, it was French, okay. Was, yeah, the French Fifth Army, Lazare's army. But it was interesting because among them was a lieutenant named Charles de Gaulle. Charles mm -hmm. de Gaulle was the, um, was in that, was, the, you know, in Denant defending on the 15th, defending the, the river crossings, the two bridges in mm -hmm. Bouvines and in Denant from the Germans. And, and uh, there was a crack regiment that was there. It was a good, good units, good companies. And they held off the Germans and sent them in, into mm -hmm. retreat. And then, of course, de Gaulle <clears throat> is injured. Isn't he injured during that battle? I think it was. And the bridge that crosses the Meuse yeah. today is named after him. That's right. Yeah. 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 There was a controversy um, while I was there, or maybe just before, about should they put the German flag up? They had flags in different countries. And, oh, yeah. Uh, uh, and they, there's a big debate about whether they should include the German flag. I think they did in the end. They uh, did. Oh, very, interesting. Very, very bitter debate. 
Somebody told me about that. When I was- so is it your opinion, though, that aside from the um, French military that's on the other side, that there were not, uh, what did you call them, uh, French terreurs? No, absolutely not. I mean, there'd be no, there was no organization, no, no uh, Burgermeister or no Belgian officials ever. They actually sent a lot to Germany. They just, see, there are these parallels with the Holocaust in, in that they, um, Shoved people to railroad cars, sent them sent them east into um, you know cattle cars. Actually, sometimes they were you know third class carriages. Often they were just cattle cars. Sent them to the east. A lot of Germans were a lot of Belgians were just deported. They weren't kept for very long in these kind of makeshift concentration camps. But uh, uh, and then other other Belgians were just forced on sent on these forced marches. The way mm-hmm. the um, concentration camp inmates were at the very end of the war, they were just marched all over the place. So there are there are these interesting parallels. There was also the use of the Red Cross in in um, some places where the um, in Tamin in particular, after the um, sh- mass shoot mass execution of these 500 people, the uh, people with Red Cross armbands, soldiers with Red Cross armbands came, and uh, the Belgians who had survived raised their hands, and then they were shot by these guys. So and and the, the Germans did, did did this in World War II too, in the uh, extermination camps for Blinkla. But anyway, the point was that they had a chance to interview um, these these town officials, these high, these burgomasters and town councillors. They had them in their hands, not only in Belgium, but in Germany. Never was a single one accused of organizing resistance. It was just crazy. There was no no time to do that. Right. And no, I just and want no. to interject that the Frank terrors, I forget what the translation is, but basically they would uh, be like guerrilla free shooters they were free they shooters were free. yeah the idea that there were there's the belgian resistance there was just no good evidence for that i mean of course right. it's also possible that somebody in liege province shot at a soldier but the accusation what, what's so incredible is uh, the accusation over and over again if you read the german um uh accounts is that these these guerrillas were shooting from their own homes down on troops marching through town, which is crazy. Who would do that? I mean, this is pointed out, of course, by critics in neutral countries as well as allied countries. That this is this scenario made no sense. People would operate in the open territory and ravines and hide behind hedgerows and shoot up people from their own homes. Because mm-hmm. and then when the Germans invade the homes, they don't find any weapons. The weapons disappear. Right. They so, just disappear, man. Yeah, you yeah. say that in the book. Yeah. You talk about yeah. that. I just wondered about that because I've read about it. I don't know what the truth is. I do know that there was not that element in the neighborhood because it was a little tiny neighborhood there at the uh, aqueduct where all those people were oh, packed yeah. like sardines. I mean, I I think that if any of my family, any of the men in my family were a part of this, I would have that story too. But no, there was, mm. I agree with you. One of the things that became apparent to me as I was doing the research on uh, my the family history, but also uh, the history history, what I realized is that I can't tell the story of World War II and what happened to my family in World War II without going back to World War One because it's it's a big part of I, I, what I think about is the psyche of the Belgian people that 25 years ago, uh, the Germans uh, came into our country they massacred people and they occupied our country. And then, oh my God, I think it's 25 years later, they're coming again. And what that must have done to people's post-traumatic stress, you know, as the psyche of the country. 
and also particularly to my mother because of the family story that she knew at seven years old, she knew about this massacre. And so uh, I think that for me in this story, I have to go back and I have to look at what happened and I have to tell that story to give a sense of, you know, the, the nuances and that type of thing. Uh, so the particular story I'm talking about is the one that is in your book. We uh, talked a little bit about Adele uh, Ubion Charlier. My grandmother was uh, Ubion, uh, Simone Ubion. So my grandmother's father was the brother to Adele. Huh. Did you go to Neff? Did you see this? I, you know, I, didn't, I didn't cross over. I just stayed in Denada. I didn't cross the river. So... Uh, where this aqueduct that we're going to talk about is, it was in front of my mother's great aunt's house, which was also in front of the railroad tracks. On the other side of the street is where uh, Adele's brother, Cyril Ubion, lived. So they lived right across the street from each other. And it's it's the end of a narrow alleyway. This area, this is the neighborhood that my mother, like I said, ends up back at when the war has started and the Germans are coming into Belgium. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to read an excerpt from her account of what happened, and then we can talk about that. So this is her account. Adele says, how could I not go mad? I had a beautiful family, recalled Adele Ubion Charlier, comprised of six children, my husband and I, making eight people in addition to my old father, Pierre Ubion. So Pierre Ubion was my great, great grandfather. 85 years old, lived with us. We were very happy. My husband, Saturn in Charlier, age 40, was employed in the business firm of M. Legros in Dinan. The oldest of my children, Maurice, age 16, worked at the train station. Anna, 15, was learning needlework, and the four others were still in school. Claire, 12, George and Georgette, twins, 9, and finally little Gustave, 4. On the morning of August 23rd, with the first noise of the bombardment, we descended into the cellar and spent the whole day there until around three o'clock when a shell blew up the front of our house. Then with my husband, my six children, and my old father, we all took refuge under the railroad aqueduct. My old father, on account of his great age, couldn't lower himself enough to enter the aqueduct and so remained just outside, and my husband and oldest son kept him company. They were constantly exposed to the shells and shrapnel that fell all around us. Adele Charlier begged her husband to allow the family to take shelter together in the Florin's house opposite the aqueduct, and he finally consented. The Florin family consisted of a widow, Monin Florin, her two sons, Raoul and Lois, the latter's wife, Charlotte Lalo and the couple's four-year-old son, Nicholas Monin, and his three children, Aileen, Jeannie, and George, had joined his sister's family earlier in the day with the arrival of the Charliers. Seventeen people were crowded in the floor and cellar. Two explosions rocked the house, then a neighboring home caught fire, and the family feared it would spread to the Florins. We had to leave very quickly and find a new refuge. I suggested that we return to our basement as the enemy no longer seemed to be aiming at the house. But while the others left, I went back downstairs to find something I'd left behind. On returning to the street 
and not seeing anyone, I assumed they had all followed my advice and taken refuge in our cellar. I found it empty. Then I began to cry and to call out, and at the moment my old father arrived, accompanied by Madame Florin, they reassured me that the others had found a safe shelter, and the three of us descended again into my basement. I learned later that her family and mine had once more gone to take cover in the aqueduct. If one was worried about German shells and not about Germans, this was not a bad choice. Though the space underneath was small, the vault was very solidly constructed, the arch at its apex was some 15 inches thick and nearly 40 inches thick at the sides. After about 10 minutes, which seemed to us like centuries, we heard a frightful uproar, cries, gunfire, exploding bombs, then the silence of death. Concerned about the fate of our families, we clambered upstairs along with my old father. On the doorstep, a German seized me, pushed me brutally into the middle of the street, and asked me if I had money. I looked around, hoping to see my family, when I spotted my little George lying on the ground, injured. He had just been pulled out of the aqueduct by Jules Vanderm. I raced over to him and asked him what had happened. The soldiers fired, he told me. I looked him in the I took him in my arms and sat down on the little wall near the house. But what did I see then? Raoul Florin and Constant Poulet, as ordered by the soldiers, were busy pulling from the aqueduct the injured survivors. And in what state? Oh, my God. As Adele Charlier watched in horror, the two men pulled out various victims, still living but horribly mutilated. A 15-year-old boy, Edouard Poulet, died as soon as he was lowered to the ground by his father. Others moaned and writhed in pain, especially heartbreaking, were all the injured children, some with ghastly wounds. Kept away from the aqueduct by soldiers, Adele Charlier could only wait until other family members emerged themselves or were carried out. Suddenly she saw her daughter Claire with her youngest son Gustave. My God, Mama, Claire cried, you weren't killed. Her mother assured her that she was alive and asked about the others. Where were they? Below in the aqueduct, we followed father. Claire then turned to some soldiers standing nearby and asked them to kill her. Stunned, her mother asked why she was talking like this. Anna and Georgette are dead, the girl sobbed. I'm going to stop there. Uh, but that, I mean, that part just totally breaks my heart. It just breaks my heart. Yeah, this it was so vile it was just there was no you know the, the um, germans later claimed that they had, there was gunfire coming from the aqueduct and that an officer had been hit it was just lying you know the these and what was incredible was one of the women actually saw when she saw the soldiers with their guns leveled she just you know pleaded i mean she looked pleadingly at them and held up her baby you know her little infant oh, yeah. and they still they still there was still open fire, you know, that was the order that was given fire on them. It was just so uh, heartless. And then, then they went around to the other side and threw hand grenades in. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So these, you know, the people were just horribly mutilated, you know, and, and uh, I didn't, you know, I did give some of the details because you can't appreciate what happened. It's just to say like, you know, 23 people were killed you know, it just doesn't convey what, what actually happened. You have to hear, right. you have to realize the injuries and the suffering that, that went mm -hmm. on for hours afterwards. 
Right, right. And I know that, so Adele's husband and her six children were in there. Her husband is uh, killed in the massacre. Uh, two of her children are killed in the massacre when it happens. And then another one is pulled out, but he ends up succumbing to his injuries. So she loses four members of her family in yes. that that massacre. Right. Yeah, and that's only son. one story of all the people that were, I think there was like 40 some people in there. I don't remember, yeah, but it was a lot. 55 and I think 23 were killed and 12 were injured badly injured and I don't know how many of the of the 12 died um, eventually but um, yeah they just I mean I mean people were in the middle were were safest because they were you know it was just a small 25 square yards or something for 55 people it's just were just like sardines and then some some nap some residents of that the, the really most infamous massacre because it was larger and this was at the it's called the Bourdon Wall. It was right across the river in Les Rivages, the suburb that faces the southernmost suburb of Dinant that faces Neff. And some of the Neff res residents were pushed into boats. I think, I forgot, I think 70 something, 77 people were killed against this wall, shot men, mm -hmm. women, children, babies. And 43 of them, I think, were from Neff, the town of uh, Adele uh, Charlier. And um, they were just shoved into boats, rowed across the river, and then shoved up against this wall and shot. No, I think a couple of people reported that the the they were trying to build a pontoon bridge across the river. The Germans were, to, you know, so the troops could cross the Meuse down there. And uh, one of the officers said, like, well, if the if the French fire again, we're going to shoot you all. So they were, in effect, they were hostages. But the, they hadn't bothered to tell the French that. So <laughs> right, so uh, right. so the French, you know, of course, were firing on the on the engineers building and workers building the bridge. Mm -hmm. So it's crazy. So that, in, in saying that, he was acknowledging that the French, very clear, even without binoculars, that the French army was on the other side, firing their 75s, firing machine guns. You know, there were, there were civilians. So um, just, just unspeakable. Yeah, uh, and then then they just went on a rampage, and so once they crossed the Meuse, and then killed lots of other people on the, you know, not not a not a, not like under the aqueduct, uh, but um, but just random people in homes, and courtyards. So my grandmother lived across the street from Adele, and I we don't know I don't know what the story behind it is, but they were out of town. I don't know mm -hmm. if they knew what was coming or if they were just. I, I would like to know that story, but they mm -hmm. escaped this uh, brutality because they were somewhere else. But they lived in that house across the street. My so my great grandmother was uh, worked for the railroad, and her house was provided to her by the railroad, and she manned the gate that was there at that crossing. Um, so she oh. was, yeah. You, you said at one point that your that then that the, your um, Adele Charlier. Uh, built a, a little memorial to the victims? Oh, yeah. So there is a memorial there. And I was there in 2012 with my mother. Uh, so she gave a parcel of her land, of her property there, uh, to the town so that they could erect a memorial. And it has the names of the um, those that, that were uh, massacred there. And so when my mom would go to visit her grandmother, because my mother's family lived in uh, Palisol, and my mom would take the train to her grandmother's, 
right there at the railroad crossing. And that was the area that she would play with her brothers and mm. you know the kids in the neighborhood. So here she is playing around this memorial that is dedicated to people that were massacred right there by the Germans uh, in World War One. And so then she goes back to live with her grandmother, her father's fighting in the war in France, and the Germans are coming. And this, I mean, think about a seven-year-old child, and these are the things that are swirling around in her head. Yeah, the Germans, uh, when I did come in the second time, they just systematically destroyed all of these memorials. I said they didn't get them all. They didn't get them all. Apparently not. So yeah, that that's that story. I mean, apart from the... Um, brutality of the invasion, all of the people, this nearly 6,000 people killed. Then there were the four years of occupation. That was very oppressive. You know, it wasn't, wasn't really like Poland during World War II, but it was still, wars had been conducted pretty kind of occupations in a much more civilized manner. And what the, what was really resented by the Belgians so much was the slave labor, the force, about 120, not by World War II standards, it's very small, because I think there were as many as 12 million slave laborers altogether working for the Germans, but they they uh, just conscripted these guys. They started with unemployed. They tried to get them to volunteer first, and the military governor of Belgium <laughs> didn't like the idea. He said, "This is not going to be popular. You shouldn't do this." But it was, and it was very, very much resented by the Belgians because they sent about half of them, or a little more than half, off to Germany to work in munitions and uh, works and other and on farms. And then, um, but the other half, they sent, you know, they were like on the front lines, right behind the front lines, re rebuilding the trenches, you know, a number of them were killed. So they, they really resented that very bitterly. Mm. And that's interesting, because that kind of goes along with this idea of rehearsals in World War II. Mm -hmm. Yeah, again, that... The they, slave labor and... Yeah, uh, there's, the killings really stopped after the st front stabilized. For one thing, there was, you know, one third of Germany is Catholic, and you know they were not happy to see all these priests killed, and mm -hmm. they wanted to preserve the peace at home, and uh, so they had orders after that not to behave the same way as they as they had uh, coming in. They just were not. There were just very very few killings, um, uh, and no large scale massacres after the front had stabilized. Mm -hmm. I still have my um, grandmother's papers from uh, World War One. She was a teenager, oh. mm -hmm. and it has, you know, the German side and then the French side during the occupation. Like a internal passport. Right. So, right. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. But it was during the occupation. Oh, that's interesting. Jeez. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. There was. I. I. Uh, there's a book by a great Belgian historian Henri Perrin that I uh, translated and and published. Um, describing the occupation in great detail. And again, it just doesn't compare to how the Germans acted in the Second World War, but it was very shocking for civilized people like this great historian to, to see there were home searches, home invasions, there were uh, stringent curfews. And, um, and of course there was like a barbed wire and electrified fence because they didn't want Belgians escaping to Holland, neutral Holland. So it was just like being in jail. It was far worse than what's going on right now with the quarantines and the lockdown. Yeah, that's what my cousin so, and I were, we kept talking yeah, about that yeah. and thinking about our parents and what they had to deal with and what we're dealing with and the similarities, but then the reality that, you know, they were dealing with horrific things that yeah, we can't even comprehend. They still did shoot people and they, sh and they 
and especially uh, pe um, people who were, um, you know, in, in the resistance that formed, who were mostly just helping Allied soldiers, Allied airmen, and or Allied troops and British troops in hiding to escape, like Edith Cavell, who was a British nurse. So people people still being shot, many fewer, much smaller numbers. Well, we've, we've covered a lot of territory. I think we have, yeah. Well, thank you. I'm really, you. like, I can't thank you enough for writing the book. It meant oh, a lot to my thanks. mother when we found it and that we found uh, Guy Charlier as well because he actually reached out to me through uh, my history, which is like kind of like the European version of Ancestry. Oh, he found me and then we compared notes and realized how we were related. And then I was able to connect him with my mother who was at the end of her life, but it meant so much to her to be able to, you know, interact with him and talk about how much she loved her, her aunt and, you know, that type of thing. And I think it meant a lot to him. So yeah, this was a great meeting you and talking to you. I think we covered a lot of ground. I'll, it, it's probably going to be about another three weeks before this episode is released. So um yeah and then i'll also talk i'll also talk about your um i'll end it with your website and all the information about you and how people can find you okay really enjoyed talking with you and thanks for your, your interest and it's it's great you know every few months you know three or four months i do get an email still from belgians who um you know have read read about some relative and uh uh, it's nice to, it's really nice to hear from them. And, you know, I'd be very happy to hear from anybody who happens to see this podcast if they have more questions. Okay. Yeah. I'll put, I'll put your uh, website on there and eventually I'm going to have a pod uh, website. And then for each episode, I'm going to have like uh, information, photographs, that type of thing. So I'll include all your information in there. Yes. A lot of really good questions. And uh, Oh, thanks. You know, yeah. It's a lot of fun. Yeah, I enjoyed it. Stay healthy. Yeah, you hopefully, too. Yeah. Hopefully you're right and this will be over in the middle of April. I hope yeah. that's truth. Well, I, I'm not sure it's going to be over, but at least it'll start declining the number of new cases and all. And we'll have tests and we'll be able to get a, a handle on it that way, I think. I think mm -hmm. that's the answer. It's just going to take some time. But um, yeah, stay healthy. Yeah, you too. Take Thanks. care, Marie. You too. Bye. Bye-bye. Thank you for joining us for the second and final episode in the Jeff Lipke's interview. And perhaps now you can understand more fully why I cannot tell the story of what happened to my mother as a seven-year-old child in World War II without first looking back, exploring the history of the German invasion of Neff, Belgium, and particularly how it affected my family. In the words of philosopher and novelist George Santayana, those who cannot remember the past are condemned to repeat it. You can find Jeff Lipkes at jefflipkes.com. And again, the name of his book is Rehearsals, The Germans in Belgium, August 1914. Stay up to date with the latest news on the documentary as well as the podcast on social media. You can find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Also, be sure to subscribe to us through your favorite podcast platform. All those little actions help to uh, bump us up in the mysterious 
realm of internet algorithms, uh, basically it helps us and it helps people to find us. This is a Belgian Rabbit production. We're excited to announce that Belgian Rabbit Productions will be launching a new podcast, Armchair Historian, within the next two weeks. Stay up to date on the latest announcements about this exciting new podcast on our social media pages.